0: Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. A founder's journey has its highs and lows. It's not a linear path. Every founder is also a regular person filled with high hopes and big dreams. That middle part of their story before they reach the top is where we can catch them at their fullest potential. What we learn of their past gives us a glimpse into their future. This is Founder Stories. Today's founder knew success at a young age by talking to the right people at the right time. Kane Sarhan burned the candle at both ends, working long hours as a personal assistant, becoming a jack-of-all-trades, from opening bars, working in tech, and launching one of the most successful new hotel brands. With the right connections and a lifelong entrepreneurial spirit, Kane partnered with experts to create a wellness retreat in the heart of New York City. With locations around the world, it's becoming an operating system for wellness. This is the story of The Well. Hi, my name is Kane Sarhan.
1: I'm a entrepreneur and creative. I am the co-founder of The Well, a holistic health and wellness company, and also, a brand consultant, designer, avid TikToker, husband, and dog dad. <sighs> I have been entrepreneurial since I was a young child. I did not have the language or the understanding to classify my hustle or my entrepreneurial spirit as entrepreneur. I always have started Projects. You know, I was president of my student body. I built and created the first school newspaper at my high school. I started fundraisers and would do t shirt drives, to raise money for nonprofits. These were all things that required an entrepreneurial spirit, right? They tapped into this desire to create and build things. Grew up in rural Michigan. And when I talk rural, I mean like take your tractor to school day, Spirit Week, Michigan. I'm a gay man. I was gay since I was a young child. And I never felt unsafe or unloved in Michigan. What's interesting is that I never really felt like at home in my hometown. I always knew that I wanted something bigger. I always wanted to do something with my life. I always had this urge to create something or to build something. I think a lot of that came from... A lot of instability in my younger years. My mom and, and biological dad's divorce was was a bit of a messy one and there were a lot of ups and downs and and a lot of, I would say, unstable years in that. And so for me, it was always about, I think, one, getting away from that and two, moving to a place where I could build a life that had the access, the stability, the success that I always wanted to have as a kid. I came to New York actually as a 16 year old on this UN pilgrimage. I won this like speech competition in my hometown and got to spend 10 days as a page at the United Nations and absolutely fell in love with the city. You know what I mean? Like a 16 year old in those like bright lights of, of Times Square and like walking down Fifth Avenue and just this energy and excitement of the city. So I knew then that I wanted to move to New York. And when it came time and I graduated high school, I actually decided I wanted to take a gap year very active from a service perspective in high school I ran a grief camp for kids struggling with the loss of their parents or loved ones volunteered across tons of organizations and I had this like desire to serve and to give back and so I found a program called AmeriCorps which is actually like the domestic peace corps was started by Bill Clinton in the 90s The sort of inspiration and founding program of AmeriCorps is called City Year, where you spend a year in an urban city sort of in service. So I moved here at 18 to uh, the rough side of Brooklyn. It's now actually super trendy. It's now called East Williamsburg, but it was in East Williamsburg when I moved there. And I spent a year volunteering, doing after school programs, revitalizing parks getting rid of graffiti, you made $224 a week, plus a metro card. We were on food stamps, and it was a year of service that brought me to New York. I had four roommates in a three-bedroom apartment. Really, was brought to New York in a very humble way. And what's interesting, though, is that for me, an entry point to getting to New York, it sort of filled this year of service. My mom, when I did it, she was like, I don't know. She was, like, so nervous about it. She said something to me that was so right at the time. But felt so wrong when she said it. But now looking back is so valid. She said, how are you going to help other people like when you still need to help yourself? When I went into this year of service, I hadn't come out yet. My parents didn't have the means to support me. So I was like supporting myself financially. And my mom was making a comment of don't you need to like take care of yourself? Don't you need to get yourself established and then help other people? Which to me at the time felt selfish. But. In hindsight, she was 100% right because that year was extremely hard for me. And I was going through so much from like a sexuality perspective. I got my first boyfriend. I came out to my parents and they were like, literally my mom's response was, duh, we've been waiting. What took you so long? But there was just so much going on in me emotionally that I look back on that year really fondly of on like a huge learning year for me. It like made me grow up very quickly. It taught me a lot about who I wanted to be and who I thought I was, but actually wasn't. And a lot of my motivations for service were very much rooted in an insecurity and a self-pleasing manner and not authentically wanting to give back. It was more about like being rewarded for being a thoughtful one. Once I had been here for a year and had been in New York, I was like, I'm not going anywhere. And so I enrolled in university here and then stayed. I would say, like, I have been a high-performing delinquent student my entire life. Formal education has always been easy for me, but something that I never really enjoyed. I took AP classes. I was always scrambling last minute on my homework. I was always, you know, pulling things out of my ass last minute. But I was a very good standardized test taker. I have a really strong memory for regurgitation, where I can, like, learn a bunch of stuff very quickly, regurgitate it, and then I forget it, like, three days later. So I was able to hack that system And when i got to university i started applying those same tactics but i really struggled because i was spending forty thousand dollars a year on school i was working 30 hours a week i was going to school and, and i was getting decent grades but like i wasn't getting any value out of it i went to school for my first like 18 months in school and i really was like quite lost and i was partying all the time and i was drinking all the time and my grades weren't great but I was spending all this money in student loans. So it was like this double whammy where I wasn't actually applying myself and I didn't find value, but because society told me I had to go, I was racking up this massive amount of debt. The summer of my second year, I was waiting tables at a restaurant in the East Village and there was this woman who would come in every week. And she would come in and she would always take the same table. She would always have a different group of people with her. She had diamonds galore on. She would be in, like, the most fabulous, like, heels. But for her clothing, she'd have like, a double XL Old Navy sweatshirt that she cut the neck off and turned into a dress. She had, like, the perfect blonde hair. She was a super fabulous person. And after, like, the third or fourth visit, I asked one of the people who had been there, and I'm like, who is that? And they're like, oh, that's Jackie. She's one of the owners of Coyote Ugly. And every other gay boy who grew up in America in the 2000s I was like, oh my fucking god, I love that movie. And it was the bar that it was originally based off of. And one night she ended up in my section, and I was determined, I'm like, I'm gonna make friends with this woman. And so that night, we like really hit it off. She asked me to sit down at our table, she's like, so what do you do? I'm like, I'm in school. And fortuitously, she had an assistant at the time who was pregnant and about to go on maternity leave, and she needed someone to sub in for her while she was gone. And she's, I want you to call my assistant tomorrow at 3 o'clock, schedule an interview, let's talk about it. And I ended up becoming her assistant So the next few years working for her. She ran the bars, she produced movies, she had all these other things she was an investor in. You know, I helped build her websites, I got her on social media. We had this insane relationship and she just sort of opened the door to me of what entrepreneurship looks like, right? And what a successful entrepreneur looks like. And she was such an amazing mentor in my life. It was after a couple years of working with her and and sort of getting this experience, I started sort of dabbling in creative projects myself. I ended up starting a gossip magazine for New York City college students called The College Gossip Chronicles with a friend of mine named Cassie. We published two issues. The first one was The 50 Hottest College Kids in New York City. I organized the photo shoot for it. I taught myself Photoshop to learn how to build the magazine. I taught myself how to code to build the blog. I paid for the first 6,000 issues to get printed. The first issue ended up on the cover of the New York Post with a full-page spread. The issues flew off shelves of campuses in like a day, which was a super success. So then we were able to get some people to advertise. We sold $3,000 in advertisement, thought we were like loaded. Did a second issue, which was a Get Fit issue, where we did like a 30-day fitness competition where people tracked their fitness online via the blog. And our celebrity judge was a new reality star named Kim Kardashian. And she had just released a fitness tape called Fit in Your Jeans by Friday. And Cassie, my business partner, reached out to her and her team and asked them if they would judge it. They said yes. She totally judged it for free. She was our celebrity judge. She picked the winner. This was like 2009. So like Kim was like just starting. You know what I mean? She, I think she was still doing like mall fashion shows. And so I did those two issues, but I was also still working for Jackie. I was like sort of hustling. I was still like doing one class a week. And then I went back to school full time and then dropped out again. And I was just like, I had all this like urge to like create and to build and to do these things. I was doing it such a candle at both ends way that everything was just sort of maxing me out. Jackie decided to move to Los Angeles with her boyfriend. And so when she moved, I was, okay, I'm building this magazine. I need to find a job that pays my bills. I literally went on Craigslist. And there was a posting for a guy who was looking for an assistant. It was like 20 hours a week, 25 bucks an hour cash. My thought was I was like, okay, he just needs help with scheduling these things. I had mastered that stuff on the other side. So I was like, he's going to think I'm working 20 hours a week. I can do it in 10, I'll make money to cover like my rent and like my basic bills, and I can focus on my project. I went for an interview my first time at Soho House, which again, like every gay boy in America, I had watched Sex and the City and seen the episode where Samantha like couldn't get a membership but wanted the pool and it was like the coolest place in the world. I remember spending an hour and a half getting dressed to go to this place. I think I had like a bow tie on and bright pink button-up shirt, like the most like ridiculous outfit. And I walk into this sew house and it's the lobby downstairs is super tiny and dark and there's this big desk of these people being, you can't sit with us, like who are you? And I had to give them my name and I took this elevator up and comes to this six-floor lounge. And I'm waiting and Nahal comes out and he's this five-foot-nine Indian guy. He's got on like a blazer and a t-shirt and like a scarf. And my first thought is, oh, my God, he's gay. (laughs) And he's not gay, but I'm like, oh, my God, he's gay. I'm like, oh, this is easy. And we sit down and, you know, he's talking a mile a minute and I'm talking a mile a minute. And he's an entrepreneur. I have this mobile tech startup. I'm starting this venture fund. I'm like, I don't even know what the fuck the word venture fund is, but great. But Jackie had invested in companies. So I'm like, okay, I get the investing thing. But what's a venture fund? He's like, I am big on mobile tech and social media. My girlfriend is about to launch her campaign to be the first Indian woman to run for Congress. We're doing all this stuff. We need help. And so we have this interview and I get up after 40 minutes and I walk out and I'm like, I have that gig. Always been big on social networks like Twitter. I joined early. Instagram, I joined early. TikTok, I joined early. I'm also a a big researcher. Something I've learned that is like the most valuable thing is you always walk into a room knowing as much as you possibly can. The internet has made that possible for everyone. It costs no money. Obviously gone in, Googled Nahal Meta, gotten his whole story, knew everything about him, and had followed him on Twitter. And so I leave it. I'm walking down 14th Street, and I see a tweet come up from Nahal on my BlackBerry. And he's like, interviewing potential assistants all day at Soho House, but I think I just found the one. And I responded to him like, let's make it official. And he like liked it. And a couple hours later, he calls me. He's like, hey, can you meet Reshma and I? Reshma, his girlfriend, Reshma Sajani, who was the first Indian woman to run for Congress. She has been a super successful activist, started a nonprofit called Girls Who Code. Now, like, literally reinventing what legislation for working moms looks like in America. Can you meet us at this coffee shop tomorrow morning? I'm like, oh, great, yeah. And I'm like, oh, he wants me to meet the girlfriend. And I show up there, and he didn't tell me. It's literally the launch of her congressional campaign. So I show up to a rally. So I just start, like, live-tweeting it, and, like, you know, it's, like, a cool thing for me to see. At the end of it, he's like, Rashma, this is Kane. We talked for 10 minutes. He's like, can you start tomorrow? I'm like, yeah, I'll be there. So I show up to the office on Monday morning. And my first week, I was hired to work 20 hours. I worked, like, 47. And then he's like okay let's bump you up to like 30 hours the next week i was hired to work 30 hours i was like 57. it was such an easy relationship and we got along so well and i was very quickly able to provide a shit ton of value to him and reshma right and just like do some things for them he was the perfect boss of anything that i wanted to dabble in or try to own he'd be like try it and he'd always give me the latitude and so i spent three years working for him and i started as his apprentice. I then became like creative director was leading design and he gave me so much latitude. What was crazy is at the same time this is now right when the financial crisis had happened. I graduated high school in 2005. So, we were graduating in a not strong job market and and because I had started this gossip magazine, I had friends at Columbia, I had friends at NYU, I had friends at Pace, I had friends at Fordham, I had friends at all these universities and I'm like working for Nahal. What started as $25 an hour had evolved into a 100K a year job. I had really taken on a shit ton more responsibility. Traveling the world with him. Nahal and Reshma are, they're so humble, but they're such ballers, you know what I mean? They're like besties with John Legend. Reshma's just, oh, we're having dinner with Hillary Rodham Clinton tonight. They call me the tripod. I was like their third leg, so I went everywhere with him. So all my friends are like, how the hell? You're a college dropout. (laughs) You were the party kid who had the trashy magazine. How the hell are you now have this amazing job, making this money, getting to all this cool stuff? We all have more debt than you. We're in finance and we hate it. Or we studied literature and we can't get a job. Honestly, I got super freaking lucky with these two mentors, with Jackie and Nahal, but I also saw opportunities with them and worked my ass off to either get the opportunity but also did some serious grunt work for them to, like, earn my keep. Yeah, I got to do cool shit, but I also was scheduling all their meetings, running their personal errands. I planned Nahal and Reshma's wedding, found them their dog. (coughs) Nothing was below me, because I saw it all as an opportunity of, sure, yeah, am I running to pick up dry cleaning and coffee? Absolutely, but my next meeting is, I'm with Nahal with the CEO of Verizon, and he's letting me take notes and learn from him. I very quickly realized the value exchange that was happening and where i could be most helpful and where i had opportunities and these apprenticeships were just life-changing for me and so on the other side all of nahal and reshma's friends were like where do we find a cane we need a young go-getter we need someone to help us do you have friends we want to hire people we've seen how much of an impact you've had on their life how much you've made them more efficient how you've helped them be more successful we want that as well and one of my colleagues at the startup, Local Response, uh, Shaila Eticheria, had a completely different journey than me. She went to ASU, graduated, went and worked at Microsoft for a couple years, got into Harvard for MBA, did Harvard MBA, graduated, and she had taken this ultimate track to success, but she wanted to work in startups. And what was interesting is she was five years my senior, and we had jobs on the equal level. We were making the same amount of money, We have the same titles. She was like, you got here five years faster than me. And she's, I freaking went to Harvard. I have a hundred and some thousand dollars in debt. If I had known there was a way to do it the way you did, I would have done that. And I was like, well, I've actually been thinking I want to start this apprenticeship program because I'm getting all these asks. And we were sitting at a bar right off Union Square called Lily's, which is this like Irish pub. It's still one of my favorite bars in New York. It's so great. And we literally, it was just so fucking cheesy to say, but we took out a bar napkin and we started writing down what could this look like. I went to Nahal and Rushman. I told them the idea and they were, this is so cool. We totally love it. And we decided to quit our jobs and we decided to call it Institute with an E instead of an I, the Entrepreneur Institute. And to start, we decided we're going to ask 35 entrepreneurs to be our mentors that service-oriented, good Samaritan sort of nonprofit hero kicked up in me, and we decided to make it a nonprofit. I had felt for-profit universities and student loans had been totally predatory on me. And I had seen it happen to so many people. You also were seeing this like explosion of the University of Phoenix's, these universities that take advantage of people, often from low-income backgrounds. I don't want anyone to distrust us. I wanna have credibility of we're doing this for the right reasons. You know, we were saying, hey, you're 18 to 24, college isn't right for you, come to us. We were basically telling people to drop out of school or not go to college. I thought it was important from a brand perspective and from a credibility perspective for it to not be a for-profit enterprise. Looking back, horrible decision. Not because I don't think the like motivation or the thought was right, but because being a nonprofit is so fucking hard in this country and the amount of reporting you do and the way that you can raise money and the way you have to spend the money that you raise the oversight to keep that 501c3 status and not pay taxes inhibits so much growth and like sort of narrows you in and i believe if we had done a b corp which were just coming out then or if we had had a little bit more experience or a little bit more knowledge at the time we could have done something that gave us more opportunities for capital and for growth that i think would have actually made us more successful You're asking people for money as a nonprofit. You have to find individuals who care about your topic. It takes a long time to build relationships with them. You're not getting a check on your first meeting. You're not getting a check on your second meeting. These take time. You then, to raise money at a bigger scale, you're going to foundations who have very specific missions. They have very specific things that they're focused on. You go to them and you're like, listen, I'm looking for a grant for 250 grand to run my nonprofit. And I just need it for general operating costs. And they're like, we love you guys. We can give you one hundred and fifty grand, but it has to be for this. my first time fundraising as a nonprofit, Shiloh's first time is as fundraising as a nonprofit and and listen, we hustled our way to millions of dollars. We became echoing Green Fellows, which is one of the most prestigious nonprofit fellowships in the world. We raised money from the Coffin Foundation, from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, but we were always struggling for that next check. We were always seeking more capital, but what the fundraising process did is it often drove how we scaled and what we focused on because that's where the dollars were which would take us off mission and would have us do things that ultimately would actually end up leading to us not being successful at like as large of a scale as we wanted to i had just thrown with my friend rebecca joe this giant fundraiser in new york called Raise Cash, which was a fashion fundraiser for this nonprofit called Hack NY. And we had raised like 150 grand in a night for it. It was like the first big event for New York Tech. Everyone who was anyone was at it. It was a huge success. So I had all this credibility in the space where I was able to go to Dennis Crowley, the founder of Foursquare. I was able to go to the founders of Warby Parker. I was able to go to Dave, the founder of Tumblr. These guys who were just starting their companies and be like, hey, will you be An entrepreneur, do you want an apprentice? And they all were like, yeah. So we got 35 of the biggest entrepreneurs in New York. Still to say, I'm like, I can't believe we convinced all these fucking guys to do this. We built an application on our site, and I had learned early on with College Gossip Chronicles the power of media, free media, earned media with PR. And we got 500 applications for the first year, which is crazy. And we decided for the first year, again, to mitigate risk for these kids because we're like, fuck, we're responsible for these kids. They're 18-year-olds, kids who just graduated high school, some guys who had left school. We had a girl who was moving back from Europe for it. We decided to rent a loft in the financial district and live with them. And Shyla lived with them full time. Props to her. I was like in and out because I had like a super rent control department in Williamsburg. I couldn't let go. And we rented an apartment on Stone Street. We accepted 11 students, and we moved them in to this loft in the financial district. And the program was two years long. They spent Monday through Thursday as apprentices. Friday, they had individualized learning, where we had aggregated Coursera and all these different platforms for them to study, and they had to report their topics. There was a whole curriculum they had to follow. Every other week, we had a hosted lecture at the house where they would cook dinner for someone, and that person would tell them their life story. I mean, we had Mark Echo, the founder of Echo Fashion, come by. We had some insane people run through our door and talk to these kids, and we did our first year. We then expanded, accepted more students in New York. We then expanded to Washington, D.C. because we had a donor who really wanted us to go there. We expanded to St. Louis because we had a donor who wanted us to go there. We started looking at expansion in Miami. And throughout this whole time, it's us two and one full-time person and a part-time person. We grew in different locations way too fast. And our students were having amazing results. We have kids who've gone on to raise tens of millions of dollars in venture. We have a couple big exits from our alumni. We've had people go on to win Echoing Green Award. There was definitely success from the program, but we were kids in our own right, and we never built the infrastructure to actually run it properly. We scaled it up, and it got to the point to where we looked at each other one day, and it was, we can't do this. It's going to implode. And it was like held together by like bubblegum and duct tape. So we went to our board and we decided to wind down the program that we ran but take all the structure and the learning and sort of the curriculum that we've developed and do a partnership with Arizona State University to create the first accredited apprenticeship program in the country where you could take what we started and actually get a college degree from it. Which Shyla ended up going and implementing at ASU, I phased out at that time. And it was just such an interesting roller coaster of building something that I'm still so proud of but building it in all the wrong ways and learning sort of as that first-time entrepreneur, like real, when it's yours. Even though I had seen successful entrepreneurs, you know, some of those things they say, like some mistakes you just have to learn on your own. Just realizing the importance of talent and hiring the right people for the right roles. The importance of capital when you're building a business. And like, yes, even today, we're always fundraising for the well. You need to be well-capitalized. For a lot of like capital intensive businesses, the importance of access to capital, the importance of staying true to a mission and to a vision and to a plan and not allowing others to influence that, but also being open to feedback and to learning from people so that you're not so rigid that like you drive yourself into a hole. It was such a a learning experience, but it was so valuable. And, you know, it's something I'm still so proud of. But I think if I had started it today, I would have run a much better organization. After Institute, I had had a job since I was 14 and 8 months old. When I turned 14 and 8 months, which is the legal age to work in Michigan, my mom took me to a family friend's restaurant and dropped me off in the back and I started washing dishes. I had had a job ever since with no break my entire life. So I thought I was going to take a break. I was engaged to be married. My fiance at the time was finishing up his master's at Princeton and and was going to be a U.S. diplomat for the State Department. And so I was going to be living abroad in Brazil with him. And one of the things I did, I went and met with all of our donors after we wound it down to tell them, hey, we're doing this. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your money. To maintain a relationship with them. And I went in to what I thought was going to be like a 30-minute thank you lunch with this guy named Barry Sternlicht. Barry is the founder of Starwood Hotels and Resorts, W Hotels, Weston, Sheridan, top three most important people in real estate in the world. Fucking genius. I had met Barry in the most weirdest of circumstances years before. I was on a panel giving a talk about mobile and social marketing. And at the end of it, they asked if anyone had questions and Barry raised his hand. I had no idea who the hell he was. And he points to me and he goes, how old are you? And without even thinking, because I'm a sarcastic dumbass, I go, how old are you? And immediately the moderator's eyes light me on fire. And I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. I'm just kidding. I'm 25. But like, why do you ask? And he's like, you just seem so young, but you know so much. I did not realize that I was speaking at a private conference organized for Starwood Capital Group, his private equity fund, by their agency of record about mobile and social marketing and i had just talked back to the ceo needless to say it became like a bonding moment for us i talked to him afterwards he gave me his contact information we stayed in touch he obviously became a donor to institute so i went in to meet with him and in the middle of the meeting he goes wait let me show you something and he like pulls up a website for this new hotel brand that he's launching one hotels he's like i'm doing this eco hotel brand i hate this website that my team's built you know, I don't like any of the branding. I don't like any of the social media stuff. He had known me as like a creative, a designer, a mobile and social marketer, etc. Because we had met when I was working for Nahal at Local Response. And he shows me this website. It's like a landing page. And he's like, I paid a million dollars for this website. And I'm like, no. He's like, yes, I did. And I'm like, wait. And i like, I'm like, give me your laptop, and I do it, and I do the domain backslash WordPress login, and it pulls up the WordPress line, and I'm like, this is on a WordPress template. Please tell me you did not pay him. I could have built this for you for like $400 in three hours. He's like, what? And I'm like, you must have something wrong. Like, there's no way, and he's like, well, you should consult for me. Like, why don't you come and help me? I need help, and I'm like, uh, I don't know anything about hotels, Barry. He's like, you'll figure it out. He's like, you work on the mobile, the social stuff. One day a week, you know what I mean? And he offered to pay me one day a week what I made every two weeks running the nonprofit. So I was like, hell yes. I'm in. Uh, it's so funny. Just like Nahal I was there one day a week. He calls me. He's like, the team really likes you. Can you give me two days a week? I'm like, sure, I can do two days a week. The third week, he's like, can you do five days a week? I, I'm like, oh, okay. Two things are happening right now. One is I'm very quickly realizing that while I love my then fiance as a person... I made a drastic mistake as like a young human, proposed to someone that I actually don't want to marry. And Barry at the same time is pulling me more back and back to New York and and offering me this consulting gig. And he calls me one day. I was like, you've gotten more done in three months than my team has in three years. I am firing the head of brand today. Don't worry. I'm recruiting a new person. I'm going to have it filled in a month. I just need you to babysit everything. Never forget his words. You're my best athlete. Just watch over everything. If you don't know what something is, ask one of the guys who's worked in 20 years in hotels. They'll tell you. You'll be fine. There'll be someone new there in a month. Not like, will you, can you? Good luck. Take yourself up to full-time as a consultant. We'll figure it out. Great. Bye. He was paying me like 18 grand a month or something, which like back then, I was like 26 years old. It was like, holy shit. And little did I know that the person who would actually... I had a brand job actually made double that so he was actually saving money but I didn't give a fuck and a month went by two months went by a year went by two years went by and he just never hired anyone else. and I just became the head of brand of this billion dollar hotel company like all things in my life serendipity played a role in my next move. I was uh, out in the Hamptons one day at a friend's house in the summer, and I bumped into a-, a friend, Rebecca, an acquaintance at the time, who was also a very good friend to the friends I was staying with, and started chatting and you know, told her about me working for One Hotels and this guy. And coincidentally, she had a meeting set up with my old boss and was gonna talk to him about this idea she had for a wellness center. And I didn't think much of it. Went about my day, and and then the next week or so, I get a call from my boss, and and he's, I'm meeting with this girl, Rebecca Park, this idea that she has for a wellness center. You should come, maybe we make it part of one hotel. He's my boss, I'm gonna show up to the meeting, of course. And I meet with her, and we start talking, and, and I'm immediately drawn to her, and to this vision she has. And I think what I'm really drawn to is her spirit and authenticity for what she wants to build. As she's been this consumer, she searched for this product. She believes wholeheartedly in this model of healthcare and this bundle of wellness and all these modalities. And I'm sort of just drawn to her. And I immediately have this urge to just collaborate with her, but start helping her. And we just start having these conversations. Never I, I wasn't actually thinking about totally leaving. You know what I mean? I was happy in my job. I was happy in what I was doing. I had a great gig and I learned so much but there was just something about this vision that she had and what she was looking to build through a very organic natural relationship we just through phone calls through meetups through just me giving advice i wasn't a formal advisor i wasn't anything specific i woke up one day and i remember i was in my house in miami and i was getting ready and i remember distinctly thinking like i don't want to go to work today so I sort of turned inward and was, well, what would I want to do today? And I was, I want to go work with Rebecca. And so I called her and I was, what if I quit my job and came and did this with you? And she was like, oh, my God, I've been waiting for you to say that. I was hoping. I didn't want to ask. I didn't want to be inappropriate, you know, Barry. And, you know, I didn't want to overstep. And I decided, you know, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go build this wellness center. I was not a wellness person at the time. You know, I smoked a half pack of cigarettes a day and drank two sugar-free Red Bulls for breakfast. So I wasn't attracted to it because I was interested in the modalities. I was attracted to it because I thought it was a really good business idea, And I had seen the market demand for wellness through one hotels, and how much people were willing to spend to really have wellness at the center of their travel and have wellness at the center of their life. And so I quit. We began this journey of figuring out what would it look like if your health had one address. Right, And what would it look like if you were to build what was this destination wellness model in the middle of a city? And that kicked off a really important time for me because it wasn't just me starting a new career, but it also kicked off at the same time a new relationship with my now husband. And it also kicked off me really making some big changes in my life from a wellness perspective and really putting wellness at the center of my life in in ways that made sense for me. Starting a company and being an entrepreneur it's probably the worst fucking thing you can do for your wellness. It is so demanding and stressful and all-encompassing and exhausting and terrifying, for lack of a better word. It really goes against these basic principles of, of what you need to be well, right? Sleep, quiet time, stress-free environments, etc. What's really interesting for me is that in starting the well, it was part of my job you know I was our chief creative officer I was driving this brand I had to actually be able to understand what I was talking about and because I was not a wellness person before I really had to deep dive into this stuff and it was a forcing function to me to do these things because I had to for my job which meant that even in a time when I probably didn't have the bandwidth or the time to really focus on my wellness I got to because I was really learning something right and it was part of me doing my job well and I got so lucky there because what it did is it showed me that I could integrate wellness into my life no matter how busy I was and we tell ourselves these lies of I'm too busy for that I don't have time for that that's too hard to do that's too hard of a habit to form and the fact is is that you know you make time for whatever is important to you and For me, what became so powerful is that every little thing I did on my wellness journey, be it using acupuncture to quit smoking, be it starting to take supplements to replace the vitamins and nutrients I was deficient in so I didn't feel less tired, be it stretching, yoga, a mindfulness practice, getting a massage every six to eight weeks, treating my skin better, drinking enough water, because like basic thing of like, people are dehydrated and need water, Every time I did something, I actually got better at my job. And I was able to actually do more in the same amount of time that I had before. And so wellness to me became a bit of a drug. It's addicting. When you see it works, when you see the results, when you feel better, when you look better, when you move better, you want more of it. Contrary to like what I thought, starting the well was the best thing I ever did for my wellness and for my health in the early days. I would say, because it gave me and exposed me to all these tools and all these experiences. And we spent a couple years fundraising and planning and designing and finding a space and leasing. And And we raised $18 million before we ever opened our doors, which is, you know, in venture world, $18 million with $0 in revenue is a pretty decent fee for three first-time entrepreneurs. I think the main reason that we were successful in raising money and getting people to buy into what we were doing is, first and foremost, Sarah and Rebecca are extremely authentic to the mission and the vision that we were trying to build. And I think I have become more authentic to that over time, and I'm aware of that, but the two of them have lived and breathed this lifestyle for a long time, and so they can speak so truthfully and honestly to the power and to the results that come from it. So I think one was that. Two was I think we had a very unique set of skills that complemented each other and we had proven track records in the businesses that we had worked in of success so people were able to look at me and say okay yeah you you know foundational fundamentally important person in launching a hotel brand that's worth a couple billion dollars in a very short amount of time there were case studies that they could point to and third I think is we <laughs> knocked on every door turned over every stone hit up every single person that we could for the intro, for the connection, for the person. We had 200 meetings. And what I think happens a lot is people have 10 and they don't get anywhere and they stop. We would have 10 in a week easily. And eight of them were no, one of them was maybe, and one of them was like, sure, but after you get a lead. And so it just took perseverance. You know what I mean? And and that's what a lot of this game is, in my opinion, of like, you have to have passion. You have to have purpose. Most importantly, you just have to be willing to grind and to show up and to do the work and to put your head down and to when you get punched in the face, nurse your freaking bruise and then stand up again. And when you get punched in the gut, nurse your bruise and stand up again. And most importantly, recruit really talented, smart people who are willing to do the same with you. The easiest part of our journey was raising the money and getting the place open, to be honest. We opened our first location for The Well in September 2019 on the corner of 15th Street and 5th Avenue. 15,000 square feet of space, beautifully designed, you know, what we called a wellness mecca on the corner of 5th Avenue. East meets west in, in New York City as our flagship location. And we opened with a weekend-long celebration where we just invited all of our friends and family to come, hang out, take yoga classes, take meditation classes, get treatments, eat in our restaurant. Ryan Seacrest came on our opening weekend. Cindy Crawford came on our opening weekend. And we bought one of those giant blue ribbons with, like, the big scissors and, like, did a ribbon cutting. We also did an intention setting and we had, like, a whole weekend. And it was so great, and it was so fun. And and from the moment we opened, the business was doing great. You know, we had hundreds of members, we were making great money, it was ramping month over month. And you know, that first 30 days was doing well, the next 60 days were doing well. And you know, on like the 64th day, we had entered the festive holiday, and on Christmas day at like noon, I get a call from Sarah, my business partner, to say that a steam pipe on the second floor in the office space above us had exploded overnight. I was in Miami. Rebecca, our other business partner, was out of town. Sarah was in New Hampshire. And Sarah drove down that day and got here and just walked through our spa floor with six inches of water on the ground. It looked like a bomb had gone off. And just, you know, water and floods are just so destructive. And it's not just what you see, it's what you don't see. The water in the walls, which then leads to the mold in the walls. It was like shock. Almost $2 million worth of damage. Damage in spaces that were highly, highly important to us for revenue producing. So we had to shut down half of our treatment rooms, rip out everything, rip out the drywall, replace it, dry it all out, our locker rooms. It was just never ending. We're a wellness center. We can't, like, we had to be extra 100% certain that there was no mold, 100% certain that there was nothing lingering. This was just not only financially destructive, destructive from a time perspective and a utilization perspective for our business, but it's also highly destructive to your focus. You're an entrepreneur. You've been open for 60 days. You need to be focused on building this company, you know, increasing revenue. And, and we were so distracted as a team with this flood. And end of February, March, 2020, the flood is done. We're finally fixed. We're through it and COVID-19 had. After like week one or two of being closed, it became clear that it wasn't going to be a week or two. And so we had had some really smart board members who were like, the day that we decided to close, we're like, you need to plan to be closed for a month, six months, or a year. And you need to run all scenarios. And two weeks in, we're like, it's going to be six months. We need to like... Make even drastic cuts, make even tougher decisions, and we immediately, within like a couple of weeks, pivoted our whole business to online, moved our services online, our membership online as much as we could, built an e-commerce platform, and started selling our products online. Organized a meditation with Deepak Chopra for 200,000 people. We were just figuring out how do we save our business, how do we save as many employees, how do we change our business model, how do we stop paying rent and, and get some deferment, how do we cancel contracts, how do we just like save this business. And it was six weeks of just, like, trying to, like, survive, but also trying to quickly understand what the hell do we do to, like, be in business? Like, what do we keep doing? And our team was just so resilient, and, and we just put our heads down, and, and we tried a bunch of things. The 13 months that we were shut down in New York, and the, that, like, 13-month period, while extremely hard and excruciating and scary, was the most... Influential and probably important time of our business, and actually became a moment where we started laying the foundation for what is our business today, which was really expanding our footprints, building out this development model, expanding into new markets of real estate. September 2019, we had one location on the corner of Fifth Avenue, 15,000 square feet. I look at March 2020, we have a shutdown location. 15,000 square feet on the corner of 5th Avenue. When I look at today, so we're going even two steps forward, we have two locations outside of our flagship, So we have three locations total, one in Connecticut, one in Costa Rica. We're months away from opening a fourth location in Cabo San Lucas. We are building locations in London, Aspen, Miami. We are in negotiations on locations in Santa Fe. In California, in the Midwest, in the Mideast, we are actively being pursued by 30 locations that are asking us currently and asking us to participate with them and chasing us down. And we are almost 100 people building what is now, I think, and what we believe, one of the most important operating businesses for wellness and real estate at the moment. And will be by the end of 2025, we're going to be well over a dozen locations, close to 15 all around the world, multiple markets, and we're no longer just spaces and clubs. We're building residences and offices and communities, and we're really building this operating system and this operating company that says we are going to integrate wellness at the center of someone's life. And what would it look like to live at the well? What would it look like to work at the well? What would it look like to gather at the well? What would it look like to travel with the well? And really creating a brand that centers wellness through all physical and real life experiences. And it's gotten so much bigger than I think we ever thought it could. And it's taken all these shapes that were outside of our wildest imaginations. And the only reason that was possible, honestly, is because of the pandemic. I don't think we'd be here if it wasn't for the pandemic. I think we'd still be successful. I think we'd be still building a business. But I just think it wouldn't look like it does today because we had to get creative and we had to get smart. And we had to be open to new ideas and we had to right size our business. And we had to really take a step back and say, what's this mission? Why are we here? Why are we doing this? What are we looking to achieve? And also, what the hell does the world need from us? How can we be of service? And the pandemic gave us the opportunity to do that. I'm still so in love with my work at The Well and, and you know, what I do every day. And it's my, my primary job, obviously, and, and what I do. And, you know, I'm excited to expand it around the world. One thing I discovered during the pandemic and sort of leaned into was I found a opportunity to take some time to start writing some stuff down of just my personal story, what I had learned. And I sort of reconnected with different points in my life or inflection points where opportunities Have presented themselves or big changes have happened. I found that almost all of them were messy times in my life or messy situations. And that it was often in these messes or in these uncomfortable or these awkward or these transitionary times that opportunities grew. And I also realized that at the same time, like, People were really uncomfortable and sort of ashamed of that messy side of their life, right? And they talked about these personal and professional—they didn't talk about these personal and professional messes. They hid them. They were ashamed of them. we have this culture of presenting a perfect self on Instagram or, or on social media, when in fact the most valuable and important times are often the times that, like, really don't photograph well. I got really inspired to start just talking about my own messes and sort of owning them, both for my personal growth and development and sort of just evolving as a human, but also started realizing that was really valuable to people. And I started writing a book called Messy Situations. And it's so tied to my work at The Well and really looking at the messy side of life and being able to find tools and resources and habits and friends and family and practitioners who can help you navigate that. And that book has started taking on a life of its own. It's evolving into a podcast. I'm exploring what it would look like on television. Uh, We're talking about it as programming within the well. It feels like it's something that will be with me for forever Like think it's sort of a, a platform that I'm looking to build and, and I'm not 100% sure what that'll look like but I do know that for me I'm really looking to the last two years of the world it's something that we all have in common right the whole world has had a really hard two years and for some people it's been way worse than others I would say like If I look at my past two years, I'm so fucking blessed and so lucky in the grand scheme of things, had a party compared to some. What I took away from it is that we actually are all in this together and that our collective happiness and safety and prosperity is generally linked. And I want my work with the well, my work with messy situations, my work with anything and everything I do to be about like harnessing and fostering that. And so... You know, I think there's a little bit of an open door and what that looks like a couple years from now. I got a lot more wells to open and to design and to create. The book's got to come out. We got to see if anyone wants to fucking read it. Who knows? I'm just excited
0: to keep going. Founder Stories is a production of Lola Media and is hosted by me, Mesh Lakhani. Thank you to Kane Sarhan for sharing your story with us. You can find out more about the Well by visiting the-well.com. You can also subscribe and listen to Kane's new podcast, Messy Situations, which is also a Lola Media production, on Apple, Spotify, or any podcast platform. The Founder Stories team includes Olivia Briley, Stephanie Horton, Ramsey Yunt, Xander Adams, and Haas Nasser. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. We, of course, appreciate you sharing this with your friends and subscribing to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. And if you want, leave us a review. It goes a long way. Until next time.